Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussein. Maz, there is a lot to discuss this week. We had the uh, initial ruling that came down from the International Court of Justice in The Hague that uh, overwhelmingly ruled in favor of South Africa in its uh, case uh, against Israel for what it alleges is genocide in Gaza. And the Israeli government responded to that, well, first of all, by by declaring victory and uh, aided by the United States, projected the impression of what took place at The Hague as the judges telling Israel that it could continue waging its war um, and that it just needs to be careful, uh, when in reality that is not at all what happened. But perhaps more important than the spin campaign that Israel and the United States have been engaged in coming out of The the Hague ruling is that Israel launched a full-on attack against uh, one of the primary humanitarian initiatives that exists or remains in Gaza, and that is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. Now, this organization has been in the sniper scope of Israel for quite a long time, and the Israelis view this as an entity that is going to ultimately aid the establishment of not just a Palestinian state, but uh, the right of return of Palestinians who were forcibly expelled from their homes. And the Israelis uh, provided the United States with information that they said they obtained from uh, signals intelligence uh, and intercepted cell phone communications, as well as the, uh, the testimony of people that Israel has taken prisoner and interrogated, and they say that they documented at least a dozen employees of this uh, very important UN agency that were involved in some way or another with the October 7th attacks. Um, And again, I emphasize that some of this intel, uh, the Israelis say, came from the interrogation of people that it snatched during its ground operations in Gaza. But then the propaganda campaign Uh, And this initiative by Israel intensified this week when the Wall Street Journal ran a piece uh, with a headline that was, uh, intelligence reveals details of UN agency staff's links to October 7th attack. And the Wall Street Journal, based on Israeli information, said that 10% of the uh, Palestinian aid agency's 12,000 staff in Gaza have what they described as links to militants. And if you read the article, they're not explaining what they even mean by links. Uh, in, in some cases, they're talking about people whose family members are uh, connected to Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And they're banking on this notion that people won't understand that Hamas is not just the Qassam brigades. Hamas is 
a governing authority within Gaza. And so to merely say these people have connections to Hamas is hardly the smoking gun that it's being portrayed as. But I think it's also relevant, Maz, to point out that the lead writer of this Wall Street Journal piece is a journalist by the name of Carrie Keller Lynn. And Carrie Keller Lynn was a journalist for Israeli media outlets. Okay, that's fine. But she also was in the IDF and a person that she says was her best friend. She credits her with single-handedly creating the IDF's social media strategy. Um, This is the lead journalist who wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I'll just say it bluntly, it read to me like an Israeli government press release filled with unsubstantiated allegations that was passed off then as an article in one of the most important newspapers in the United States. And then this went like wildfire and people uh, use this to try to put more pressure on more governments to cut their funding. And the United States government and other governments already have said that they're going to pull their funding from this UN agency that is one of the most important humanitarian organizations helping refugees in uh, Palestinian Gaza, educating children, providing health care, providing foodstuffs, and uh, is one of the frontline responders right now to uh, the the dire humanitarian crisis that has been caused by the Israeli siege, invasion, and occupation of Gaza. This is a very, very dire situation. And the final point I'll make on this, Maz, is that in the instructions, uh, the orders, the provisional measures that were issued by the panel of judges at The Hague, uh, one of the, the main directives to Israel was to immediately allow unimpeded humanitarian uh, aid into Gaza and warned other countries that they should not participate in any prevention of aid to the Palestinian people. It's clear that by uh, defunding uh, this UN agency, that the United States and other countries that participate in this are ultimately uh, violating, in I say I would say a flagrant manner, the orders of the world's highest court, which were explicit in the instruction to allow humanitarian aid not cut it off in Gaza. You know, one of the most incredible quotes I heard about this this week from Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, he said that we have not had the chance to investigate these allegations ourselves yet, but we believe they are highly, highly credible. So effectively, they're banking on Israel's determination of what happened here. As you said, Israel had a target on UNRWA for many, many years, has gathered information from interrogations where we know they perform torture and other abuses against prisoners. But also, Israel has a history of making false allegations against Palestinian non-government organizations. A few years ago, there were a number of organizations in the West Bank accused of terrorism under Yair Lapid's government, who's considered to be a more dovish government relatively. And this was rebutted very thoroughly by European organizations and governments. But it took some time later on to rebut these charges against Palestinian NGOs, the purpose of which was to destroy Palestinian civil society with terrorism accusations. Now this conflict is going on. The role of UNRWA is more vital than ever on a day-to-day basis of keeping people alive. And these allegations to be accepted without investigation or without verification, to take the Israel government's word for it, It's really an unbelievable attack on Palestinians at a moment where they're desperately trying to survive, literally, an Israeli military offensive in Gaza. It's pretty shocking. And I've been, 
as you mentioned, you know, these reports and the news and so forth, the sort of uh, failures of the media and the cynicism we've seen from some segments of the media really reminds me of the period of the war on terror when it began uh, 2003 and thereafter, when there was so much effort made on generating consensus for policies of brutality against civilians, that we saw the penetration of media by governments and intelligence agencies to such a degree that we said we, you know, we look back in it with uh, remorse for most people, but now it's being replayed again in the circumstance. It's very depressing and kind of shows that these institutions have not learned as much as they claim to have from that period. Well, and it also comes as uh, Nancy Pelosi, the former House Speaker, went on national television in the United States this past weekend and uh, basically accused some activists who have been calling for a ceasefire and uh, demanding an end to the war against Gaza, implied that they uh, may be on the payroll of Russia and said explicitly that they're doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. You know, I I also have to say, with all the discussion, the Democrats are hyper-focused on the uh, demonstrations that uh, became violent at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th after Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. And you have members of Congress that were um, deeply involved uh, with those demonstrations that the Democrats have uh, alleged are, are tantamount to treason against the United States. What the U.S. is doing right now to the UNRWA uh, in Gaza, you could apply that then to, and say, well, the whole U.S. Congress needs to be defunded. If some members of Congress were involved with this, and it and it is insurrection and it is is treason, then wouldn't the consistent principle that should be applied here that the entire U.S. Congress Congress becomes defunded? I mean, th- this is how insane this is. We have officials in the United States government uh, that were involved with torture programs, that were involved with kidnapping people, that were involved with CIA black sites, who not only are are their entities and agencies not uh, defunded, not only are their public careers not ended, um, but they often are promoted. I mean, for God's sake, Henry Kissinger just died. The man was involved with mass murder after mass murder, and he was embraced by Democrats and Republicans alike until the day that they put him in the ground. So this all is, um, is clearly an attempt by Israel and its sponsors, the United States, Germany, other countries, to try to distract from Israel's war crimes. And Israel clearly is trying to use this as part of its starvation campaign against the people of Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. You make a really good point that if we're defunding institutions or shutting them down or criminalizing them based on the actions of some number of their members, the Israeli military has committed many war crimes, incredibly, in the past uh, three, four months and maintains consistent U.S. political, diplomatic, and economic support despite that. So this whole concept of using some allegations of some members of an organization to criminalize them or make them verbatim entirely, it's applied so inconsistently, it's almost laughable. The politicization of the accusations is so brazen. And the fact that it's coming now when there's so much distraction and there's so much chaos in the region and so much suffering from the people who benefit from UNRWA, it's really quite cynical. And the people who are going to suffer in Gaza, you know, it's going to be very, very stark and very, very uh, grotesque that what we see coming as a result of this. Uh, unless the decisions walk back, which so far the government seems no 
shows no indication of doing. Yeah, and I, I, I would point people to our colleague Ryan Grimm did a really good write-up on uh, on all of this uh, this week. It's in his newsletter, and it's also um, at theintercept.com. Well, Maz, there's not just the news that's coming um, out of Gaza. There's also this broadening series of uh, lower-intensity conflicts that are intensifying throughout the Middle East, where you have the United States uh, conducting uh, a number of military operations against what is loosely being called the Axis of Resistance or Alliance of, uh, of Resistance. You had three American service members uh, that were killed in a, a kamikaze drone strike inside of Jordan. Uh, you have the blockade in the Red Sea still uh, going strong and the United States regularly striking Yemen. You had Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, uh, making some pretty explicit promises about attacks that would be conducted against Israel if Israel doesn't back away from its own military operations inside of Lebanon. And to discuss all of this, uh, we invited this week the renowned Professor Juan Cole from the University of Michigan. He is the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. And since the early days of the so-called War on Terror after 9-11, he's written a blog on his website. It's called Informed Comment. Uh, You can find his writings at juancole.com. And we are very honored to have Professor Cole with us now. Juan, thank you so much for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. So let, let's begin with the, the very big picture. You've, you've been writing a lot of articles recently that not only deal with Israel's uh, onslaught in Gaza, the war against Gaza, and, and various aspects of, of the, the Israeli policy and the U.S. role, but also you've been writing about the blockade that uh, Ansar Allah has implemented in the Red Sea. You've been writing about the dynamics of the prospects for a wider war, the United States actions in um, Iraq, the rise of uh, a sort of uh, coalition that is uh, vowing to confront U.S. hegemony in the region and to potentially directly fight Israel. Let's start from the, the, the very broad perspective of your analysis of why the Biden administration is doing what it's doing right now in the broader Middle East. Well, the Biden administration is deeply committed to the security of Israel, in large part, I think, because the the foreign policy establishment in Washington sees Israel as America's aircraft carrier in the Middle East. And I think they saw what happened on October 7th, not as a terrorist attack, but as an attempt to push Israel out of the region. And the fragility of Israel in the region is often not appreciated by casual observers. But a third of Israelis say they want to leave. And if they actually did, then Israel would become much weaker demographically. About a million Israelis are out of country at any one time. A lot of times people will go off in their in their 30s and make a career. They always used to come back. Uh, after a few years. But the statistics from the Israeli Census Bureau suggest that in the past year or so, returnees are fewer than had been usually the case. So I think that the Biden administration believes that in order to keep Israel flourishing and as an asset to U.S. security in the region, it really has bought into the line of the government of Benjamin Netanyahu 
that Hamas must be destroyed, that it crossed a red line and uh, went from being a an annoyance uh, to to being a, a an actual existential threat to Israel. So that's my reading of the mood in in Washington. One one follow up to that specific to President Biden's approach to support for Israel in the aftermath of October seventh and stretching all the way now to almost four four months. The administration has spent a lot of effort trying to plant stories in the media, and in fact, it it also occurs overtly, openly, publicly, where administration officials express their concerns about Netanyahu's declarations, about this being an uh, open-ended war, that Biden is losing patience with Netanyahu, that the administration is concerned about the humanitarian crisis facing the Palestinians and the mounting death toll. And yet we still have no restriction, military aid flowing to Israel and crucially political and diplomatic support, including preemptively dismissing the validity of South Africa's charges at the International Court of Justice. I'm, I'm wondering your, your sense of why Biden seems so committed to continuing to offer that level of support, even as his administration tries to plant these stories saying that the patience is wearing thin? Well, Biden, like any politician, has multiple constituencies. And there is a a progressive caucus in the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, You probably got 40 or so representatives in in the House of Representatives that want a ceasefire and are upset at at Biden's wholehearted embrace of of Netanyahu's uh, ongoing war. And so Biden knows that there's a significant split in the Democratic Party. Opinion polling suggests that half of Democrats want a ceasefire or or maybe even as much as 70 percent. It depends on the poll. Youth, uh, anybody under 30 hates this war and doesn't believe that it's necessary. And uh, the youth vote really has been the difference between having a Republican president and a Democratic president for the past decade and a half uh, since 2008. So I think Biden's team puts out these uh, signals that that he's unsatisfied with uh, Netanyahu, and he may be. There's some reason to think he's frustrated, but he does also want to support the war effort uh, to to the hilt, as you say. I mean, the, the Israeli officials have admitted that they ran out of ammunition a long time ago. It's only the U.S. resupply on a virtually real-time basis, uh, a daily basis that allows the war to go on. So if Biden actually wanted to stop the war, uh, he could. I think he doesn't want to stop it because he wants he believes that the war could actually destroy Hamas. This is, in my view, an unlikely outcome. But if that was your premise, uh, that, that what the Israelis are doing will reshape uh, the region will will destroy a major actor like Hamas, then you could understand why somebody uh, might might back this war 100%. But then he has to deal with this, uh, this wing of the Democratic Party, which seems to be growing, uh, which is deeply dissatisfied with this knee-jerk support uh, for anything that Netanyahu does. 
know what? You mentioned that uh, it's commonly perceived and described in U.S. politics that Israel is an asset to U.S. strategic interests in the region. But it's very interesting at the moment, it seems like, given the widespread regional anger about the war in Gaza and its consequences, the U.S. is having to intervene very extensively in the conflict, not just to resupply Israel with munitions and give it targeting information and defend it diplomatically at international fora, but also the U.S. now directly fighting the Houthis in Yemen on behalf of Israel, who have said themselves are acting in response to the war in Gaza. This past weekend, several U.S. service members were killed in the drone strike in Jordan uh, carried out by Iraqi militias, who also said they were acting in response to U.S. support in the war in Gaza. And finally, the U.S. actually has aircraft carriers and troops in the eastern Mediterranean specifically to deter Hezbollah, which may intervene more forcefully in the conflict uh, without that deterrence from the U.S. provide there. So it seems like the U.S. is doing a tremendous amount to help Israel at the moment. But to the argument that Israel is beneficial to the U.S., it does seem very clear what the U.S. is getting out of this. It seems a very lopsided uh, exchange in a way. Can you speak a bit about what you think continues to hold and drive this relationship on these terms, given the fact that the strategic utility is not clearly obvious at the moment? Well, I think the strategic utility goes beyond a moment. And again, I'm trying to understand the mindset in uh, in uh, the foreign policy establishment in Washington. I'm not trying to allocute as to the truth. But they perceive Israel to be a, a long-term uh, strategic asset in the Middle East of some importance. For one thing, the Israelis have very good intelligence in the region. Trump, when he was president, met with Sergei Lavrov and some other Russian officials and actually let it slip that the Israelis had placed someone high in the ISIL councils and, and that they were getting direct intelligence from ISIL planning through this Israeli agent. Apparently, the CIA was not able to do this, but the Israelis were. And uh, since ISIL during the Obama period was the major foreign policy uh, threat and uh, dictated a lot of Obama uh, policy in the Middle East, uh, the response to it and the attempt to destroy it, having you know the Israelis penetrate it like that was gold. And, and uh, I think behind the scenes and in ways that we don't hear about, there are lots of those kinds of things that the Israelis do for the United States. And, and so I perceive the Biden administration to feel that it can hold the status quo with regard to what, what the Americans call the axis uh, of resistance. Um, I, I prefer the alliance of resistance because we always use axis for uh, pejorative purposes. But uh, the Iranians have over time established uh, – allies in, in Lebanon and, and Iraq and, and uh, Yemen, as you say, although th these are very loose alliances. It's not a command and control kind of situation. Uh, the Houthis don't uh, take orders from Tehran. But they are allied on the basis of a common perception of, of Israel and the United States as a threat to their interests. And the Biden administration came into office hoping to do a deal with the Alliance of Resistance, uh, to bring them in from the cold. And I think there was a genuine hope that that could be done for various reasons, and, and it, it may have to do with, with Biden's 
acquiescence in uh, the views of some of the hawks around him, that didn't go forward in a big way. Um, and in fact, local regional actors became tired of waiting for Biden to, to make this, this move. And, and so the Saudis reached out to the Iranians themselves uh, through, through China. And um, the Biden administration has been trying to work to extend uh, or had been trying to work to extend the ceasefire between the Saudis and the Houthis in Yemen. And that is now, that struggle may, may start back up. We don't know. Uh, but the U.S. has now taken the Saudi role of bombing Sana'a, I think, to very little effect. Uh, and um, so I, I, th I think what the, what the Biden administration is trying to do is, is to hold the status quo against the uh, alliance of resistance through surgical interventions, bombing a base of uh, one of these uh, Shiite militias here and there time to time, uh, while they believe the Israelis are rolling up uh, Hamas. And, and, and I think they must understand that this can't go on for a very long time or, or the status quo simply will not hold. But that's what they're trying to do in, in the meantime. And so even though the Iraqi militias have killed American troops uh, at a base in Jordan near Syria, the response of Biden on Sunday uh, was uh, remarkably restrained. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll reply at a, a time and a place of our choosing. Uh, that's, that's usually the way you would reply to a, a stray mortar hitting, hitting a base and not, not doing it, killing three American Soldiers, uh, th that's not something that you would put off the response to a time and a place of your choosing. You would want to uh, go to war over it. And it's very clear that the Biden administration does not want to go to war over it and, uh, and that they're attempting uh, to find a way to, to muddle through uh, this crisis. You also had uh, two U.S. Navy SEALs that, according to the uh, official reporting on it, went missing um, as part of the U.S. Uh, military presence deployed um, in an effort to stop the Yemeni blockade of the Red Sea, and now they've officially been declared dead by the United States. So it's uh, in addition to those uh, those two. Now you have the three confirmed deaths of American service members in Jordan from this drone strike. But I wanted to to pick up on something that you you mentioned about Iran and your characterization uh, of the alliance of resistance as your you're putting it and and how the the Houthis Ansar Allah is much more autonomous than is often portrayed in uh, the broader media and by uh, American and and other politicians and we we hear this phrase nonstop um, Iranian backed Iranian controlled groups and that's uh, not just uh, applied to the Houthis it's also applied to Hezbollah and at times to uh, Hamas as well and I wanted to ask you, given your knowledge of the region and politics, how you see Iran's perspective on all of this. You know, the Israelis have, uh, under Netanyahu in particular, for many years, quite transparently tried to pull the United States into a much more overt military conflict with Iran. And it seems like Netanyahu, in part, believes that this this would be his best, if not last, shot at at doing that. But I, we hear a lot about what the U.S. and Israeli perspective is on Iran's motivations. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could share thoughts on, on what you're reading, what you're hearing about how the Iranian government and, and its power structure view this current moment. 
I think the the war uh, against Gaza and the very high civilian death toll puts the Iranians in an enormously difficult position because they've talked a very good game about opposing Israel and uh, standing up for the Palestinians. And they've made a lot of political capital, at least among the publics in the Middle East and the wider Muslim world, and even, I would say, among some leftist movements, by taking this hardline stand for the Palestinians against Israel. And uh, they haven't done anything. They've, they've sat by passively as the Israelis have, have killed, well, the, the, the numbers keep changing every day, but uh, well over 20,000 people. That's a, a problem for the Iranians. They don't want to respond. They don't want to get involved. And they, I mean, it's, it, it's at least reported uh, that they told Hezbollah in southern Lebanon not to get involved in, in any significant way, that they're trying to restrain their allies. It's, it's not the image that you have of Iran in, in Washington. But uh, I mean, if, if you look at, at, at the situation on the ground, that seems to be the case. So I think the, the allies themselves are impatient. And so my guess is that the, the Houthis decided to start hitting container ship traffic in the, in the Red Sea all on their own. And uh, I, I'm not sure that the Iranians even want this. They depend on on oil shipments, uh, covert oil, oil shipments, basically to various countries, including especially China. But there are a lot of differently flagged uh, ships that probably are carrying Iranian goods, and they wouldn't wouldn't want the the insurance and the uh, the, the cost of carriage to go way up. So uh, the, the Houthis are a land-based group. They don't depend on, on, on sea commerce, and so it doesn't hurt them. So I, I suspect this is coming from Sana'a. But it does benefit the Iranians in the sense that if everybody attributes it to them, and uh, I, I've, I've seen in the newspaper Iranian officials sometimes being pleasantly surprised that uh, major events are attributed to them when they hadn't known that they were going to happen and so forth, that to the extent that it's attributed to them, then it makes it look like the alliance of resistance really is doing something for the Palestinians, and it's not doing very much, but it's doing something. And that helps Iran's popularity uh, among, among the, the Middle Eastern publics. So I think Iran is probably satisfied with, with the situation as it is now in the sense that it's getting a reputational boost without having to take very much in the way of risk. And uh, were the hawks in the United States, like Senator Tom Cotton, to prevail, and were Iran actually to be struck by the United States in response to some of these activities of Iran's allies, uh, that would change the equation. But the Biden administration clearly, in my view, does not want to go in that direction. And, and so I think the Iranians are frustrated about the war, uh, but they, they don't want to take the kind of, of risks uh, that would uh, allow them to intervene directly. And they don't want even their allies to do very much. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the Hezbollah has sent some rockets into northern Israel. Uh, the Israelis complain bitterly that northern Israel up near the Lebanon border is, is essentially depopulated. People have had to leave uh, those, uh, those hamlets. But the main military uh, um, installation that the uh, Hezbollah struck 
was abandoned. It was an Israeli base, but it, there was nobody there. So th these are symbolic uh, strikes for the most part. And I think the uh, tragedy that struck American servicemen on uh, Sunday was that uh, what might have been meant as a symbolic strike uh, actually fell on residential uh, territory and, and, and so actually killed and, and people and, and, and wounded a large number. One, you mentioned that the Houthis are taking these strikes in the Red Sea and they're generating a tremendous amount of attention to themselves, negatively, obviously, from the U.S. and the U.K. and so forth in various ways, but also in the region where they were not very popular before, they've become relatively popular in, in recent weeks and months. You see the Houthi spokespeople going on television, uh, becoming quite fixtures in social media and on regular media in the region. Because of a sense that they're standing up for the Palestinians, but also, by extension, a perception that they're standing up to the U.S. And there seems to be a very pronounced uh, view in the region that this is not just an Israeli war, but it's a U.S. war specifically. And we saw that in the statements of some of these Iraqi militia groups that claim responsibility for the attack on the base in Jordan as well, too. They view the U.S. as very intimately involved in the war, a direct participant in the war in Gaza even, Whereas in the U.S., it's often uh, depicted that a more of an arm's length relationship, and people are sometimes surprised to see a retaliation against the U.S. directly for actions which are taken by Israel. Can you speak a bit about the sort of disconnect and how the U.S.-Israel relationship is viewed by people in the region as very hand in hand? Oh well, people in the region don't make a distinction. Uh, they they view even you know when the United States invaded Iraq. U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq were often referred to by the Iraqis as Israelis. And uh, the notorious incident in Fallujah, where uh, four contractors were attacked and, and, uh, and strung up, was carried out by uh, people in Fallujah who called themselves Iraqi Hamas. And part of the reason that they attacked those uh, U.S. contractors was because the Israelis were at the time conducting an assassination campaign against Hamas leaders. And so the, the American public has never viewed these events synoptically, you know, has not been able to see them in the same frame. But in the Middle East, uh, the United States and Israel are, are basically seen as one thing. And so when you hear in the United States that the Israelis have killed so many um, thousands of people, the American public might say, well, that's, you know, is that really necessary? Maybe maybe the Israelis shouldn't be doing that. But in the Middle East, the, the, the comment would be that why are the Americans doing this? And, and people are furious in the Middle East. I mean, their, their blood is boiling all through the region against the United States. This is not a completely new phenomenon, of course, and uh, we, we've seen moments in the past when there has been a lot of anger towards the U.S., in, in part because of its uh, unqualified support for Israeli impunity. But it, it is quite remarkable, the uh, the amount of, of anger. And and so, you know, it, it puts American allies in the region in a difficult position because the Saudi uh, government, uh, the government of the United Arab Emirates, the Jordanian government, they all hate Hamas. And nothing would please them better than for Netanyahu to succeed in destroying it. And so none of those governments has done more than criticize the war. 
Uh, and, and, you know, de facto, they, they agree with the war aim. But their publics are not on the same page. And uh, so the Saudis and the Jordanians who have a, a real population, you know, the United Arab Emirates is a postage stamp country with a million citizens and, and eight million uh, guest workers. It's in a different demographic situation. But the Saudis and the Jordanians, the, the governments really have to negotiate with their publics and their publics are furious. So you, you see people in, in Saudi Arabia, for instance, who – uh, the government has demanded a ceasefire, even though the U.S. is opposed, uh, uh, and um, they have uh, criticized the conduct of the war. And they've they've said openly that you know you, you can forget about these Abraham Accords business until uh, the Palestinians are treated properly. That's for Saudi public consumption. I mean, they're they're trying to reassure their own public that that they are not villains in the peace. So. Not only does not only people in the region see the United States as more or less behind this war, as 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 a, as a hundred percent backer of it, and uh, uh, and the reason for which it can go on, but the, the publics and the governments are are deeply split, and so that's why something like the Alliance of Resistance, by sending out some drones and sort of committing some pinpricks against Western security gives them a great deal of cachet. And in a place like Iraq, you know, it could be consequential. They have elections and uh, uh, the militias are all also civil political parties. And they have, last I knew, is some 60 seats in parliament. The current prime minister, uh, al-Sudani, is beholden to the Shiite militias and their, their civil bloc in parliament. So there's likely a, a fair storm coming in relations between the United States and Iraq over all this. And, of course, what the Shiite militias want is not only to punish the U.S. for its involvement in Gaza, but also to push the remaining U.S. troops out of the region. So with their 2,500 troops in uh, Iraq, mainly doing now training and logistics for the Iraqi army and its continued mop-up operations against ISIL. There are some 900 U.S. troops in in Syria liaising with the, the YPG, the Kurdish leftist militia, and again, to make sure that ISIL doesn't come back to give some support, some support to the Syrian Kurds, and, uh, and also maybe to block uh, Iranian and Shiite militia activity in, in southeast Syria. So the, the Shiite militias in, in Iraq are trying to push the Americans out and maybe hoping uh, that the U.S. response to something like uh, the attack on the uh, base in Jordan uh, will provoke uh, such a large rift between Baghdad and Washington that the troops will have to leave. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. 
That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I wanted to ask you, Juan, um, about the, the notion of endgame here. This is something that's, you know, a conversation that's being pushed in Washington and in um, European and uh, Arab capitals, of particularly of countries that are dealing directly on negotiations or diplomatically with, uh, with Israel. And there's some indication from U.S. officials that they're nearing some form of another deal to release some of the captives uh, that are being held in Gaza, as well as Palestinians who are being held in Israeli uh, jails and military prisons. But I- I'm wondering about what Netanyahu might be seeing as the end game, what the American government might be seeing as the end game, what you've read. Uh, you know, I know you don't have inside sources uh, necessarily on any of this stuff, but I'm, I'm bringing it up in the context of what even in the Israeli media now is being described as an emerging quagmire in Gaza for the Israeli military on a tactical level. There's been much made about the the tunnels of Hamas. Only a small fraction of them have even been penetrated by the Israelis. You have, uh, Israel's a relatively small country and, you know, the death toll of Israeli soldiers is climbing. The families of Israelis who are being held hostage are becoming completely emphatic in their impatience and demands for some sort of a deal to be made. But even among seasoned defense correspondents in the Israeli media, you get a sense that they understand that this is not actually going well on a tactical level for the Israeli military. And I'm wondering what you see as Netanyahu's endgame here. I mean, do, does he believe he's going to be able to, to sort of redraw the, the map of Gaza is the plan to actually annihilate the Palestinians as a, a population in Gaza? Would Biden permit such a, a, a sort of endgame from Netanyahu's perspective? I'm throwing a lot at you here, but we hear a lot of conflicting messages from different parties involved. But it does seem like Netanyahu recognizes this may be his last shot at implementing lifelong agendas that he's embraced. You know, the, the thing with Netanyahu is that he's an opportunist and doesn't actually seem to have many principles. There are some things that he stood by for many years, of course, opposition to a Palestinian state and uh, torpedoing any sign of a peace process has been characteristic of his position, but those are negatives. As for a positive vision, I've never seen him adumbrate one. And I think my reading... Uh, and as you say, it's it's only from reading the newspapers. But there was a great diplomatic historian who once uh, said, I think correctly, that there are no secrets if you know where to look. And uh, I, th- I think we can know quite a lot about what what policy is is being proposed and and, and made. The Netanyahu cabinet is deeply divided over its vision of the future of Gaza. Uh, so Netanyahu brought these fascists in to to make his government, and um, the Jewish power bloc and the religious Zionism bloc, they would very much like to ethnically cleanse Gaza and indeed to bring back uh, Israeli squatter settlements on Palestinian land in Gaza. And um, it's not so much that the Biden administration wouldn't permit that. Uh, I, I think Washington will roll over whatever the Israelis do and accept it, but the Egyptians won't. 
accept it. I mean, where would the people in Gaza go? Likely it would be into the Sinai. Well, the, the Egyptian government has spent all the time since 2013 engaged in a counter-revolution against the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam in Egypt. And uh, the, the, the officer corps in Egypt, and the raison d'etre is A, to run the country, B, to make sure there's no populist or uh, Muslim fundamentalist opposition. So the idea that the Egyptians would allow two million Palestinians, many of them members of, of, of the Hamas civilian political party, into Sinai, which is already a mess security-wise, is, is just completely implausible. And in 2018, there, there was an incident in which some Palestinians tried to flee to Egypt through the Rafah uh, crossing in Gaza, and the Egyptian military shot down a few of them. So the Egyptians have made it very clear exactly what would happen if anyone tried that. And it's one of the reasons that the Palestinians are, you know, a, a, a million of them are gathered there in Rafah as we speak, having been pushed down there by the Israelis in tents and in, uh, in, in terrible living conditions, is that there's no place for them to go. They can't get out. Uh, and, and so the idea of ethnically cleansing them is, is, is I think, not on the table. Uh, they've talked about getting other countries to take them as though, again, what what stable government would want to take in very large numbers of traumatized Palestinians from Gaza. And you know, for me as a historian, it's striking that the Nazi leadership once uh, talked about how they had taken citizenship away from their Jews. And they said, you know, people keep criticizing us for how we have treated the Jews. But now that they're without citizenship, now that they're kind of geopolitical flotsam, who will take them? How are you better than we are? Uh, and they knew the United States, Britain, even Brazil, nobody would take them. And that's why they ended up being dumped uh, on the poor Palestinians uh, in a colonial transfer. But uh, it's the same thing now is that the Palestinians are stateless. They have no state. They have no citizenship. They have no rights. Uh, Hannah Arendt said that citizenship is the right to have rights. And uh, so nobody is going to take them. So this is just the, 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 the ethnic cleansing scenario seems unlikely in the extreme. It's not that it's impossible. Then Yoav Gallant, the defense minister of Israel, wants to permanently make northern Gaza uninhabitable and to, to have it be a buffer zone, kind of like the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between the, the two Koreas. And it appears that some of the mass destruction of the physical infrastructure of northern Gaza and, you know, the destruction of buildings and uh, entire apartment blocks and so forth was not part of any war aim against Hamas. It was looking forward to the end game in which northern Gaza, there would simply be no place there for anybody to live, no, no facilities that allow them to live there. And Galant's vision of it seems to be different from Netanyahu's. And, you know, the two have difficulty uh, sharing uh, a podium when they have a, a press conference about the Gaza war. It's quite remarkable that the prime minister can't be on the same platform as the defense minister because they don't see eye to eye about how the war is going or what the end game would be. So 
Netanyahu seems to just agree with the last person that he talked to on his cabinet. If, if he's meeting with them and a fascist figure like Ben Gavir says, well, we must uh, find a way to, to have them leave, Netanyahu said, yes, we're working on it. But is he or how serious is that? So I think the the evidences from his public statements uh, to the extent that he's been consistent and, and he hasn't is that he might like to turn Gaza into the West Bank and have it be occupied by Israeli security forces. Uh, so he's opposed you – know, Biden wanted to bring in the PLO and uh, the Palestine Authority from the West Bank and have them run Gaza even though the people in Gaza you know, wouldn't find that acceptable. And Netanyahu said, absolutely not, because, of course, that's a step towards a two-state solution, which Netanyahu opposes, and a, t a step towards a Palestinian state, which he, he, you know, will happen over his dead body. So uh, he doesn't want the PLO to take over. There have been suggestions that, you know, a multinational force go in. That was done in, in Beirut after the 1982 war, uh, which didn't go well. And of course, the Marines got blown up as a result. I wouldn't advise that uh, multinational uh, task force approach. Uh, but uh, Netanyahu seems to think uh, that the same tactics that have worked for the Israeli army as an occupation army in, in the West Bank could now be applied to post-war Gaza. And the, uh, the, the Israelis could find a a new set of, of Gaza leadership that would acquiesce in this military occupation. But again, I, I don't think that, that we think you should think about Netanyahu as a man with a policy. You have to think about him as a man who's hanging off a cliff by his fingertips. And, and you know, if he can just keep the pinky from, from slipping, the, he, he's won that, that day. His government is deeply unpopular. 17% of Israelis think it should remain in power. It could fall at any moment. In fact, if he made, if he did agree with Biden to make a pause, Ben Gavir and others on the on the far right could pull out and it could go to new elections. Uh, he could go to jail. He certainly it, the the evidence from opinion polling are that were elections held today, the Likud party, the right wing party, and its far right allies would all be crushed in the polls, and that uh, Benny Gantz, uh, a centrist. A liberal Zionist would, would would come to power, and Netanyahu is actually being tried as we speak, and he's tried to find ways to uh, put off a verdict. But his trials could finally come to uh, fruition were his government to fall, and so he could just be a few steps away from going to jail. And uh, so he's hanging on for dear life, and uh, I think he one of the reasons this war keeps going on is not so much that it's plausible that it will end up destroying Hamas, which is a set of clans, and you can't destroy a set of clans, uh, but that uh, as long as it goes on, his government remains in power and he remains out of jail. So he just has to keep the fingers from slipping off the cliff. So, you know, one, we just experienced as in the U.S. a very long generational military involvement in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and various other parts of the region which ended quite unhappily for the most part. And there's still tens of thousands of U.S. troops based in the region. But it seems like there's been a political shift in the U.S. that the call for greater military involvement in the Middle East is seen as a very unpopular position. I can't even really think of uh, many politicians on either side of the spectrum in the upcoming election who call for 
greater military involvement for its own sake. Maybe Nikki Haley is a major exception. But, you know, the Trump movement was very much, you could say, an isolationist movement, even though he governed a bit differently in practice. And certainly on the left, there are these tendencies very strongly now as well, too. Much of it drawing on, you know, the failures and the uh, dissatisfactions of the Iraq war and so forth. And yet, despite this uh, growing public tendency, uh, not only are there still many, many U.S. troops in the region, but the U.S. is still very openly and publicly involved in facilitating this war in Gaza, which is breeding more anti-Americanism and uh, anger in the region against any U.S. presence at all. Can you talk a bit about how public opinion may or may not constrain uh, U.S. policymakers in the future if they were to try to expand the war in the region uh, on Israel's behalf to fight Hezbollah or Iran or other parties? Oh, well, I, I don't think that the Biden administration wants to get involved in a wider war. And, and I think they've been taking more or less symbolic actions in response to provocations, uh, um, just bombing. Of course, bombing guerrilla groups is useless. You could do that from, from here to eternity and never have any effect unless you put troops on the ground or find somebody to fight for you. So no, I don't, th I don't think the Biden administration wants that and I think they'll do anything they can to avoid it. One thing that has to be remembered is that the United States is already at war with Russia in Ukraine. And although U.S. troops are not committed, a very great deal of money and, and materiel are committed. We don't have infinite bombs in the United States. We don't have infinite ammunition. And uh, th things were already chancy for resupplying the, the Ukrainians before the, the uh, Israeli war on Gaza. And the Biden administration has been trying to resupply Israel uh, without detracting from the Ukraine war effort, it had prepositioned a lot of weaponry and ammunition in Israel for possible use in the region. And here again, you know, Israel is is a warehouse uh, for the U.S. military. It's a strategic asset uh, because they can do that there. I'm not sure any other country in the region would allow the U.S. to to, to preposition large amounts of uh, of, of weaponry uh, for for use in the region in their country. But that now has been diverted twice by the Biden administration to the Israelis. The reason they have to do that is they don't they can't send things out from California or Seattle. They don't have it. So the, not only is I mean I, I think the mood of the of the U.S. public is not in favor of of a more robust engagement uh, militarily with the Middle East. It's not even practically speaking plausible given the geopolitical situation. I mean I think it would be. For the U.S. to get involved in the Middle East at this point in a big way would be a tremendous boost for the Russian war effort and, and nobody in, in, in Europe or Washington wants to see that. With regard to the, your the sort of feelings of isolationism, I think you're right. You know, Trump had an opportunity to strike Iran and John Bolton, his national security advisor, had spent 20 years trying to get into a position where he could bomb Iran and he finally was there. And the Iranians shot down an unmanned drone over the Persian Gulf, a uh, U.S. drone. And uh, Bolton had managed to convince Trump that he had to respond. And so Trump was going to hit uh, an Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps base. But then it was announced early on a Thursday that they were going to do this. And then late 
in the afternoon, uh, Trump is said to have turned around and asked one of his aides, he said, well, how many people would die from this strike? And they said, well, about 130. And uh, uh, Trump uh, said, well, you know, they, they didn't kill any Americans when they shot down our drone. That wouldn't really be proportionate. And so he pulled out of the strike at the last moment. And uh, it's one of the reasons that Bolton turned against Trump and uh, campaigns against him and so forth is, is um, you know, Trump did not do very many reasonable things, but this was, this was one of them. And, and I think he thinks that his base, you know, kind of disgruntled uh, uh, factory workers and uh, white people in the countryside who feel that they're being taken advantage of by foreigners and Washington don't want to spend more treasure and blood on the Middle East, which after all, you know, it's hard to see in what way they benefited from Afghanistan or Iraq. And so in other circumstances, I think the the, the killing of U.S. troops in, in Jordan on Sunday would have been a real crisis for the Biden administration because the Republicans would have forced them to strike back at Iran, as some of the more um, extreme Republicans are calling for. But Trump is not going to run with that. It's very unlikely that he'll be calling for war with Iran. That's not what he thinks his base wants to hear. And so the Biden administration has a little bit of a cushion to to respond in, in, in more, as I said, symbolic ways. So I, I, I think that this is a terrible crisis. It's, it's a, a horrible thing if you follow the news closely to, to live with it every day. But so far, we're not in 2002. It's, it's, this is not the Bush administration planning to have a big set of wars in the region. You know, also, when, when, when Donald Trump is the voice of restraint, that's a, a stark reality about the clique that John Bolton represents. And there was there is certainly an enormous amount of opportunism going on with people that served in the... Trump administration. But I wanted to go back to, uh, and, and let's remember too, that Trump did sign off on the drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani in Baghdad. You know, so it was, uh, it's not that Trump was uh, was some, ki some, some kind of a dove. I mean, Trump was quite militaristic. He ratcheted up the drone strikes uh, that had widely expanded under Obama. He did uh, ground raid in Yemen, was bombing Somalia at, at record pace, uh, was striking in Syria and, and elsewhere. But you know Biden, who's much more of a of an uh, empire politician, and is you can follow a much longer arc of of Biden's career. But speaking of arcs, I, I wanted to ask you about German policy, and I'm glad you also brought up. Uh, Ukraine, because Germany has been, you know, the the major voice in the European Union in terms of big, powerful, more powerful countries um, in pushing that war. And Germany actually started to increase the amount of GDP that it's willing to spend on on defense, um, exporting of weaponry, which was uh, which was unusual for for Germany. And and mind you, this is not. The CDU in power anymore under Angela Merkel. This is, uh, you know, supposedly the liberals uh, that are in power now under Olaf Scholz, and the Green Party, in fact, uh, occupies the position of foreign ministry in the German government. But Germany has been a major proponent of Israel's war in Gaza. It has sent a record level of assistance to Israel, but at the beginning, it was overwhelmingly in the form of what Germany categorized as defensive materiel, armored vehicles, body armor for troops. And now there are reports in the German media that Germany 
is considering a variety of requests from Israel to actually start sending munitions to Israel as well. Germany signed on to be effectively uh, a defense council in support of Israel's defense at the International Court of Justice, where uh, they're being accused by South Africa of committing genocide and genocidal acts in Gaza. And many Palestinians have a perception that Germany's involvement in what they believe clearly is a genocide or an attempted genocide in Gaza is linked to the fact that Germany committed genocide against the Jews in World War II. And you had Germany announcing that it was going to sign on to support Israel at the International Court of Justice on the very day that in Namibia, Namibians were marking the German genocide that began a century earlier and uh, issued a scathing uh, attack against the German government, uh, linking those two events together, the genocide in Namibia with the with Germany signing on to defend Israel against genocide charges at the International Court of Justice. And just one last point on this, it's not just that Germany is full on supporting Israel politically, diplomatically, now it seems militarily in a very aggressive way. It's also that domestically in Germany, there are speech laws now that are supposedly aimed at halting or cracking down on anti-Semitic speech that have been weaponized now to criminalize, in although it's in misdemeanor form, criminalize several specific acts of speech that are perceived to be uh, anti-Israel. You've written recently about some of, uh, of the historical connections uh, to Germany's full support right now of the Israelis. And I'd like to hear your analysis of this transformation of Germany's posture in the world, uh, which which really ratcheted up during Ukraine, but is in full force now with the Israeli war against Gaza. Yeah, well, you know, the Germans, uh, this generation of Germans are still traumatized by World War II and the Nazi era and, and the Holocaust. And I think they decided that the way you work out your national guilt about the Holocaust is uh, knee-jerk support for for Israel. And remember that there there's there are ways in which there are limits to liberalism in in, in Germany that come out of the Nazi experience because the, the one flaw in, in in liberal philosophy is, is a belief in everybody being able to have a voice. But giving Hitler and his gangs voices, you know, didn't work out very well for the for the for the Weimar Republic. And so there are laws in Germany and Austria that limit speech of a Nazi sort. So it, it bleeds over then into the Palestine issue because to what extent is supporting uh, Palestine uh, hate speech against uh, against Israel, and these become very difficult political negotiations. And I think the the Germans have just decided that uh, that the Palestinians are a source of uh, disturbance. Uh, they produce terrorism. They uh, their their claims against Israel are outrageous, and that they've. They've kind of put them in that uh, limbo of of speech that they put, you know, the far right in uh, as as uh, upsetting the apple cart of of liberal society. That the only way to have liberal society in Germany is, in fact, to be illiberal, 
with regard to, to certain kinds of speech and actions. So it, it's an enormous psychological uh, and emotional wound that, that the Germans are, are dealing with. And I think they've come down on the wrong side of, of how you deal with this. I mean, yes, they should never forget uh, what their ancestors did because remember, you know, there, there are hardly anybody left alive from, from the era where the Holocaust occurred. But um, uh, they should never forget what their, their ancestors did and, and they should be determined to maintain uh, the kind of liberal freedoms that, that would forestall any return of the far right. And of course, that, the return of the far, far right is all of a sudden in Germany an actual prospect. The AFD uh, seems to be growing in strength. And there's, there's genuine conversations, as you know, in, in, at the high, heights of the German government about whether to bite the bullet and put the AFD under the anti-Nazi laws and sort of ban the party or ban that kind of speech because it does skate very close uh, to, to what's illegal in Germany. So if these things are seriously being considered against 20% of the German population, imagine uh, how, how expendable the Palestinians and their cause uh, uh, is in this regard. I, I think the only way forward for, for Germany ultimately is to have a different view of the significance of the Holocaust, not as something that, that they did to Jews for which their unstinting support for, for, for everything that the Israelis do is, is the only penance, but to see it as a global event against uh, a, an ethnic group. And of course, the Germans also committed a Holocaust against Poles, and uh, and the siege of Leningrad was was uh, intended to, to be a Holocaust against Slavs, and and they were going to move people out of Russia and Ukraine and replace them with with Germans. So, if you saw these events uh, as of universal significance, and then you were determined that they never happen again then they have to never happen again to Namibians and Palestinians as well as never happening again to Jews. And that's a, a universalism of, a, of an earlier period of, of German liberalism. I think something maybe that, that Immanuel Kant might have sympathized with uh, that this generation of, of Germans ha has lost and they need to recover it. One, it's been so good to get your perspective on all this and having you weigh in as someone who's written about the region for so many years and seen so many changes, it's been very invaluable. I want to ask you, just sort of conclude, you know, this October 7th attack and the subsequent war between Israel or Israel and Gaza over the past few months really does seem like a very big inflection point in the Middle East and the history of the U.S. role in the Middle East and where it may go, you know, it's impossible to say but, you know, as someone who has seen, you know, different iterations of U.S. policy in the region and different configurations of politics in the region, I'm curious what you foresee as a possible day after. Like how may the region look? How may the U.S. posture towards the region look? And what could be the future between the Israelis and the Palestinians, but also the Israelis in the broader region? Are we moving towards an era of greater conflict? Is there a possibility for these events to spur a diplomatic uh, solution out of urgency? kind of curious what you see generally with the caveat we don't know but what what do you foresee as a possible with the way the world will look when this conflict finally ends i fear that things will just go on the way they have been going on i i don't foresee a, 
big change. Of course, one seldom does, but I don't see the vision in the Biden administration that would allow them to play a positive role in, in, in reshaping the region. Ironically enough, I think Bill Clinton was the last one who had that kind of vision and the last president who did. And even he didn't follow through on it uh, in, in, in a thoroughgoing way and kind of put his thumb on the scale uh, for, for the Israelis. But I think for all of its flaws, the, the Oslo process was the last time that this struggle, this uh, conflict uh, had a, a realistic chance of, of being resolved and, and going to a, a situation where it could just be managed. You know, there are only three possibilities for for the future of the Palestinians. Either they are uh, ethnically cleansed, as uh, as the Israeli far-right wants, or they continue to be ruled under a kind of apartheid, as all the major human rights organizations have decided to characterize the situation. Or, or there, there is an evolve, evolving situation towards uh, some sort of one-state solution. I don't think a two-state solution is any longer plausible. Where would you put it? And uh, I mean, the West Bank looks like Swiss cheese if you take the Israeli squatter settlements into account. Uh, and uh, half of Gaza has been destroyed, so that's not a state. So, you know, does, does Israel-Palestine end up a Lebanon, for instance? Um, but those are the only three possibilities. And of the three, given the geopolitical realities uh, and the military realities, it seems to me that uh, another hundred years of apartheid is, is actually the more likely of the three scenarios. And uh, there isn't any counterbalancing factor that would uh, forestall that development. Uh, the Egyptians are the only major military power in the region, and they've taken themselves out of the fray. Syria is a basket case, uh, and it never really did much for the Palestinians anyway. And uh, Iran talks a good game, but it's distant, and it seems actually just to play a kind of symbolic politics with the issue. And, and then the Americans are, are feckless and uh, uh, for their own reasons, uh, because of the way they see Israel as an element in their own security, are not going to force the, the Israelis to do anything. I used to think that the Israelis themselves would finally, you know, come to their senses and, and decide that trying to keep the Palestinians uh, as, as chattel uh, in the long run was not good for them or for, or for the Palestinians or for anybody. But I've, I've despaired of that. I mean, the Israeli public opinion has moved to the f far right. And 80% uh, of Israelis are, are fine with what's going on with Gaza after, after the admittedly horrific and, 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 and soul-wrenching attack of, of October 7th that, that uh, the Hamas terrorists undertook. Uh, so I don't expect the, the – I, I don't see, you know, this, this is not something that's going to happen voluntarily, a, a solution to this problem. It's, it's, it, it's, it would have to be forced by somebody, and there's nobody to force it. So it will just go on like this, and it's very bad for the region. You take a country like Lebanon, which which could be very prosperous, but who's going to invest in Lebanon if it's uh, sitting on the edge of an active volcano? And uh, it's got uh, Hezbollah armed militants uh, running around the south. So then, you know, the, the billions of dollars are lost in opportunity costs for the entire eastern Mediterranean because of this ongoing situation. And it uh, it affects the, the whole region. And the, the bright idea that uh, Jared Kushner had that you could 
do an end run around the Palestinians and just have the Israelis recognized by a wealthy and or desperate uh, states in the region. I mean, that whole theory, I think, was was uh, refuted by October 7th. Unless you deal with the Palestine problem, you're just not going to have peace. But then I think the other conclusion we may draw is we're not going to have peace. Well, uh, that is a the opposite of an uplifting note to to end on. I, I hope you're wrong, but um, I unfortunately think that a lot of what you just said there is does constitute some of the more likely scenarios to to see, not just in the uh, coming months, but in the years ahead. Um, Juan Cole, uh, thank you so much for all of your work, uh, not just on these subjects, but um, also over the years. A real honor to have you on the program. Thank you so much, and and likewise. That was Juan Cole professor of history at the University of Michigan. You can read his writings at wancole.com. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed our show. Legal review was done by David Brelo, Sean Musgrave, and Elizabeth Sanchez. This episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you want to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com slash join. That's theintercept.com slash join. Your donation, no matter what the size, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted. And definitely do leave us a rating and review wherever you find our podcasts. It helps other listeners to find us as well. If you want to give us additional feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. And I'm Murtaza Hussain. Hussain.